electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, appreciate it very much. Thank you. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Like all of you, we're remembering the horrific events of the 9-11 attacks 20 years ago tomorrow. Our friends on the Investment Committee will reflect on that tragedy during our show today, where they were, what they remember about that terrible day and those that followed. We'll also, of course, cover the markets, and that's where we're going to start today. We will definitely get to the Apple news, but we want to start with these incredible numbers we saw showing just how much money is fleeing from the financial space and where some of it appears to be going. It's a major market story. And joining me for the hour, members of our investment committee today, Shannon Sakosha, Surat Sethi, Steve Weiss, Josh Brown. As you know, stocks are in the midst of a four-day losing streak. Down five in a row would be the longest since February. Trying to avoid that. Have some work to do this hour. Dow's below 35,000. It's a loss of 86 points. There's the S&P, which is a fractional loser today, as is the Nasdaq and the Russell 2000. The 10-year note yield sits just below 135. It's at 1348. Let's get into, though, this interesting data that we saw from Bank of America, because it tells Steve Weiss quite a story that you're right in the center of. You've got the largest redemptions from the financials in 11 weeks the second largest since the pandemic began, and the 11th week of inflows into tech. So you got a couple of different stories to chew on there, but the financial side of it I find very interesting. And you are in J.P. Morgan. I'm sorry, you're in Bank of America. You're in Goldman Sachs. You're in the XLF. So it hits you squarely where you're putting some of your money. What do you make of the fact that there's all of this money coming out of a space where you keep putting money into? You know, Scott, it is a great point to bring up. And frankly, what I make of it is, I don't know. Add it to the confusing data, confusing information that we're getting. Add it to the jolts number, which is inexplicable in my view. So I think it's a reversal of momentum trade that went into the bank stocks, into the financials, because this is not the time to be selling them. This is actually time to find any weakness to add to them. Now, they've had great runs. They've not been underperformers. So with your which I believe you will see a steepening yield curve, I also believe that the Fed's going to pull forward their rate increase schedule. I, I think you want to buy them. I don't want to sell them and I'm not selling them. But I mean, uh, I, I look, I'm very full, as you point out. So I'm not adding. No, I hear you. But I look at their performance, Steve, over the last three months, the, the KRE. Uh, is down six and a half percent. Bank of America, which I know you love, is down three and a half percent. Cities down nine and a half percent. J.P. Morgan, which has ownership on the desk today, is down two percent. Surat, you as well. Uh, Your city, your J.P.M., your Morgan Stanley, you claim this is the place to be. The market seems to be voting otherwise. Um, yeah, the market today is saying or, you know, they've been voting the other way. Uh, but I, I'm, I agree with Steve. I mean, it's rare when I do. Uh, but I do think, look, these stocks have really good catalysts coming forward. Their valuations are still cheap. Great balance sheets. I like the ones that I own with the management teams. 
And and I do think Steve's right. Look, the the Fed, we we we're probably going to get, you know, the taper slowing down. Uh, those catalysts will come uh, and help the stocks. But there are other things that are helping these stocks too. They have great asset management businesses. They have great M and A businesses and great franchises. And I think at this point, what you're seeing is some defensiveness of investors to say, hey, we have some uncertainty about reopening this, you know, Delta variants are there. Why don't we go to the safe place? Which, as you mentioned, this is the second worst loss for financials. The same thing happened over a year ago. Uh, so I like the position we're in. I think uh, there's good opportunity there, but it might not work for a few weeks. But I think longer term, we're in a much better place being in financials than some of the other stocks that are trading at really high valuation. I mean, Shan, it's been a winner. Uh, to be in these names, obviously, on the year. Um, everything is up, and in some cases, uh, substantially. Goldman's up more than 50% on the year, as is Morgan Stanley. And you've got some exposure here, too. Not so much in the large money centers, although you're in J.P. Morgan, but you do have financials exposure. And it's important to point out that when you invest in financials, we often get bogged down in the big money center banks and the largest financial institutions. But you can also talk about some of the other names in the space that have provided some big dividends to investors. Well, I think the reason that we get so caught up in banks is that, you know, we're getting so caught up in the interest rate conversation and as it relates to the yield curve. So I don't think it's unwarranted. And I think that, you know, you may be seeing some folks taking some of those gains off the table because perhaps there is uncertainty about the pace of tightening, true tightening, not just bond tapering, but tightening in the form of higher of higher interest rates. We, you know, over the last several years, Scott, it's been hard um, to bank on the central bank getting tighter. I mean, we've seen the fits and starts here and we're coming from such a low level. So I think there could be a little bit of profit taking here, perhaps some defensiveness, um, you know, as it relates to the Delta variant. But I think it's an important note that if you're looking for a rotation to value to, you know, stocks that are trading at a more reasonable valuation, to your point, there are other places within the financial sector to look at. You can look at true asset management. You can look at a firm like Schwab um, and who is obviously benefiting from the growth of retail trading and can also benefit from a steeper yield curve. You can look at the exchanges. Uh, There's a number of ways to play financials. Insurance is a particularly defensive way to play financials, but could insulate or create a barbell within your financials exposure. So I don't think we need to be running away from financials, but I think there could be a longer tail here to this trade actually bearing out, and we're seeing some profit-taking over the last several weeks. I just feel like, Josh, I hear the same thing every time when it comes to a conversation about the banks, especially in, in times of uncertainty around the space. Oh, they're cheap. Oh, it's the right time to buy. They're great positions to be in for the long term. Yada, yada, yada. Right. We, we hear it over and over again. I'm just wondering whether it, it yeah. brings back to the conversation that we, we had midweek when I first came back of why bother trying to figure out what's so tough to figure out when it comes to stocks like these. Well, look, I think I think these stocks have done well, and I agree with what all of the panelists have said so far. And the only other thing I would add to that is five hey, years hey, Josh, ago, do me a favor. You could have do me a favor. Forgive, yeah. me, forgive me for interrupting you, uh, but obviously the big story of the prior uh, hour was this ruling 
uh, related to the Apple Epic Games case. Our Josh Lipton just got just got a statement from Apple. We want to go to him right away. Josh, what do we know? Yes, yeah, Scott, we did just get that uh, statement from Apple. Let me give it to you. Apple saying the App Store is not in violation of antitrust law. Company saying it remains committed to ensuring the App Store is a safe and trusted marketplace that supports a thriving developer community. So obviously, Scott, this is a historic high-profile antitrust fight between Apple and Epic. The judge here uh, saying that Apple is uh, issuing a decision where Apple won nine of ten counts. She said Apple was not a monopolist. Success is not illegal. She says the court cannot ultimately conclude that Apple is a monopolist under either federal or state antitrust laws. But she um, did say that the Apple does engage in anti-competitive conduct. It's going to be forced to change its App Store policy specifically, Scott. She says uh, she's ordering an injunction that says Apple will no longer be allowed to uh, prohibit developers from offering links that direct users uh, away from Apple's in-app purchasing system. It will remain to be seen if this does become a rule. One open question there investors will have to think about, even if given the opportunity to use an alternative payment system, how many consumers, Scott, will ultimately take advantage of that? Back to you. I, I thought, you know, as we think about, Josh, the way that investors, and we're going to talk to uh, four of them in, in a moment, and I want you to stay with me for that, because everybody in the committee does own this stock. The way that Neely Patel of The Verge sort of summed this up in the prior hour as, as the guys uh, were talking about this story, a sweeping win for Apple, but Epic won where it mattered. That's how he put it into perspective. Is that how you see it as well? Well, one is, Scott, it'll be interesting um, whether this fight continues. Is there going to be an immediate appeal? There were plenty of analysts on CNBC who were at least assuming this could be very well the first round. There'll be appeals. That's why some of them thought this fight could actually go on for years as it moves through the courts. What this judge is, is, is going after here is this anti-steering clause, right? So initially what she's saying here is, um, you know, if you're a developer, you're going to have to, uh, Apple's going to have to allow developers um, to contact their customers and guide them to alternative payment systems. I think it is interesting there because Apple has already made moves in that direction, right? The App Store has been under scrutiny from different regulators and lawmakers, and you have seen Apple making adjustments, big ones, just recently, right? We saw them make adjustments when it comes to those so-called media apps, and that would include companies like your Netflixes and your Spotify's. Apple's now saying, okay, you guys can now offer in-app links to your websites. And Apple made a change saying developers can now uh, contact their customers directly via email with these alternative payment systems. So you're seeing um, different moves here. Of course, what Apple's adversaries um, and critics really want, Scott, they want much more than a change these steering clauses. You know, we've had them on this network. They are hammering the table here for much more dramatic changes. They want third-party app stores. They want alternative payment systems in the app store. That's not what we're getting here so far. How do we quantify, though, what the loss of this most important part of the case, I think you could characterize it as, really means for, for Apple's bottom line? I mean, I think at the end of the day, that's what matters most. Yeah. So obviously, listen, investors are paying very close attention to this. Apple doesn't break out the App Store for us, but we know it is a very important part of that higher margin services business. If you talk to financial analysts, they're going to estimate the App Store probably accounts for 30 percent of services revenue. Now, I think, listen, if this does become the rule, um, you have to then try to gauge how many consumers 
how would consumers' behavior change because of that? If I gave Scott the opportunity to use an alternative payment system, would you really do that, Scott? Or would you think, you know what, using this in-app payment system, I'm used to it, it's efficient, it's effective, I understand it. Um, there's sort of a convenience factor. Gene Munster of Loop Ventures was just on CNBC. You know, everybody's trying their best guess to figure out the impact. He thought ultimately it was important, but Gene thought his best guess is the actual financial impact could be fractional, Scott. Mm. Why don't you stay with me? Uh, you, you know these issues far better than me. Um, and I want to bring the committee in uh, as well to discuss it from an investment standpoint, since everybody owns it. And, Josh, I, I, I will begin with you. I cut you off, uh, unfortunately, when you were discussing the financial space. But pivot with me, if you will, to this conversation and how you think about this as an investment, if it at all factors into the way you think about the trajectory of a fast-growing part of Apple's business from here and how it impacts the, the stock? Well, I would, I would just say the stock made a new all-time record high in the days leading into this, which tells you that the market was not expecting a worst-case scenario here. And certainly that's not what this is. I think if you know anything about users of, of the iPhone, they prize convenience over all else, including privacy and including saving money on anything. If they were really interested in how much they're, they're paying to, to buy an app or something, they might be using an alternative phone other than an iPhone. So if people are going to default to whatever's easiest, they will continue to buy things through Apple's App Store, almost no matter what alternatives might exist. And actually, there's an important corollary to this with the financial stocks that we were discussing, uh, which is that this is right now a massive land grab. And it's the reason why companies like Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs that are reinventing themselves for the new direct-to-consumer digital age have unbelievable gains in their share prices, while many of the financial stocks that aren't able to do that don't. Because the consumer's behavior at the end of the day is the only thing that matters. The judge could have said anything they want. If we think people will default to continue to buy things from Apple the way they always have, then it doesn't matter what alternatives exist. Just like if we think people are going to continue to use apps that make their financial lives easier, some of the older, larger banks will continue to see pressure uh, competitively. So I think that that's really a much bigger story, and Apple versus Fortnite is really just a microcosm of that. You know, Josh Lipton, in, in terms of how material it, it ends up being for Apple's numbers, the, the street is... Uh, you know, taking on that issue, if you will. They did this week, Katie Huberty at Morgan Stanley, who, uh, you know, Carl referenced in the prior hour, doesn't think it's all that material, right? I mean, it's not like the street is taking down any sorts of numbers, at least in, in, in anticipation of something like this. I'm looking yeah. at a stock that's down four bucks off yeah, of 150. I, I, yeah, I, I, you know, I read Huberty, uh, Katie Huberty's note as well. I think what um, um, Katie Huberty was talking about was the recent changes Apple has been making, right? We, and we've all been talking about this on CNBC recently about the adjustments they've been making to store policies. They've certainly been generating a lot of headlines about changes to uh, media apps that would include Netflix and Spotify, changes to how developers can contact their customers. Um, what Katie Huberty and I would add Ahmad Darinati at Evercore, too, they've been crunching the numbers. So far, those financial analysts have come to the conclusion that the adjustments and the changes that Tim Cook's team has been making has not, have not had 
any kind of material impact on this company's bottom line. And of course, they would not expect Apple to make changes that would have a significant material impact on the bottom line unless regulators and lawmakers do force them to. Scott. Yeah. And Shannon, I mean, the key point, too, is it just brings back the issue of regulatory issues in and of itself not having a dramatic impact on any of these FANG Plus big tech stocks, whether it's Apple, Facebook, Google, anybody else. What is noise uh, has tended to just be that. Well, because these, you know, these large ca- large cap tech companies hold the power, Scott. I mean, to Josh, Josh, both Josh's points, uh, we are in a situation where Apple's already made moves to limit the slippage that they see. They're going to be in charge of being able to create the opportunity for these developers to offer these links, but they don't have to make it easy. Um, and I don't think anybody uh, in Washington, D.C., for any of these companies, knows enough to be able to differentiate between some... For, between some of the pros and cons of these issues. And so, I, you know, I continue to think that this is going to be noise. I think we saw it with Facebook earlier this year, and I think we're going to continue to see it with Google. Um, it's just that the regulators don't know exactly what's happening, and these companies are moving fast to get in front of these issues so that they don't see the slippage in terms of earnings and revenue. Weiss, how do you see this? I mean, you own Apple as well. Mm-hmm. So... I think you have to ignore what the stock price did up till today because the timing of the decision was a surprise. So there was nothing in the market for it. Here's how I'm looking at it. You know, when a company gets sued, they don't reserve for the amount that they think the judgment would be because that's that's admitting guilt, essentially. Same situation here. An adverse decision was not out of the question for Tim Cook and his management team. So the bottom line is we don't know what they're going to do. We know it's some moves they've made here, which is probably mollify the court in advance of any decision. But they could have something up their sleeves, and my bet is that they do, that would completely make this a non-event. So they're not going to come out with that ahead of time. So I think the best thing to do is sit back, just relax, see it unfold. There'll be appeals. There are always appeals. And the story's far from over. I don't see it in essentially derailing the stock. Uh, that we have it. Plus, no, but I mean, it's, it's such a market stock, it's going to move with the market. I mean, you could say that the activity in the stock post-decision is making the vote of a non-event. If it was an event of some magnitude, right. the stock would be down more than $3 and change, almost 4 bucks. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And that's my point. Most are taking a wait-and-see attitude, and, but everybody's speculating what it could mean. What I've heard, and I looked at what an adverse decision would be, it's a couple of pennies a share. It's not that big a deal. In terms of the growth factor going forward, if you see more of this, if this is just the tip of the iceberg on further lawsuits, uh, then you'll have a big issue. I don't think that'll be the case, yeah. though. Um, Sarat, why don't you give me your quick point of view, uh, considering you own Apple, you own Facebook, you own Alphabet, you own Amazon, Microsoft, and Netflix. Uh, Shannon, forgive me. Shannon owns all those. Look at all my notes are right, all messed um, up. Surat <laughs> owns Apple, Facebook, Alphabet, Amazon, Microsoft yes. also. So I guess I was right after all. Surat, bail me out. Right. Um, I, you know, I, I think we have to wait and see on this one. I mean, the stock market kind of reacted a little bit negatively to say, hey, now there's going to be a little bit of uncertainty on this high margin business. I do think Apple has so many quivers to go with. And, and over time, they're probably have a lot of things coming up, you know, that are just going to diffuse this. So short term, some volatility, some uncertainty. But I think, you know, the larger scale, what Apple has, 
uh, I think will, will be much stronger than, than this uh, potential loss of, right. of margin here. We uh, will continue to follow the story. Josh Lipton, thanks for popping on with us, giving us some much-needed perspective as well and uh, reporting from your side of uh, things. That's Josh Lipton there. You know, let, let's move past the financials conversation, guys, that we started with and, and sort of pivot to the other side of it because I think it plays off of what we're talking about right now. As all of this money is coming out of the financials for, let's say, 11 weeks in a row, and then you've got, in the same time period, all of the money going into technology, I noticed something that, that caught my eye, and it, it's what Kathy Wood's ARC, ARC funds have, have been doing with Tesla over the past couple of days, and that is selling uh, some of the shares on the pop that the stock uh, has gotten. Got me thinking like, okay, so Kathy Wood is about as big of a supporter of Tesla as you will ever find. And yet she takes advantage of the pop in the stock to sell some. And I'm wondering if that's the strategy that we should be thinking about for all of these tech stocks like the Apples and the Microsofts and the others that have had, Shannon, these incredible runs over the last few months. Is it time, even if you love these names, to at least take some money off the table like Kathy Wood appears to be doing in ARC? Well, Kathy Wood's a great investor, and she's thinking about things in, term of, in terms of portfolio construction. And I think if you're looking to create a portfolio that's appropriately positioned for 2022 and 2023, you do want to make sure that you have some cyclical exposure in it. However, I would differentiate consumer cyclical and business cyclical. So I look at a company like Apple that we're talking about right now different than I'm looking at a company like Microsoft, which I continue to think has a significant tailwind from enterprise spend and the, the growth in the business cyclical side of our, of, of our economy. I think over the next six to eight weeks, we, we're going to be challenged a bit. Um, I think that's why you've seen the move into technology stocks. I think it's been a somewhat defensive move for portfolio managers and for investors alike. And so, uh, you know, there could be some trimming on that as we look to potentially crust um, this, sec you know, third, fourth, whatever wave we're at on COVID <laughs> from the Delta variant. But I do think that you want to make sure that you're taking the opportunities, you know, and Steve talked about this earlier, even in financials, but in other sectors, too, that are more pro-cyclical to perhaps trim some of this defensive exposure to get ready for what should be a strong economic year in 2022, regardless of what the Fed is doing. Well, I mean, Josh, you rarely hear uh, suggestions uh, on this program of taking some profits in in some of those types of names, because if you're a longer term investor, we always bring up issues of taxes and, you know, other things that affect people's psyche when it comes to big winners in the names like Apple and Microsoft and Amazon, Facebook, et cetera. But then Kathy Wood gives us a great lesson, perhaps, in, in investing that you can be so in love with the name but yet still understand when a stock has moved enough dramatically in a short period of time to maybe take some money off the table. How should we look at that? Well, I think like you have to I think you have to make that determination based on a lot of factors and not just how you feel about the underlying company. So in the case of in the case of Kathy Wood, she's got uh, a portfolio where she's not trying to deliver people the return of only Tesla. So she's got to make room for other positions. And while uh, her fund is off about 2% over the last 30 days, give or take, her assets under management are off 6%. So she's got net redemptions in, with, a, with, a flat, uh, with flat performance in the portfolio. So sometimes when new cash isn't coming in at the rate that it was, you have to make hard decisions. And maybe 
the easiest hard decision, if you love all those stocks, is to say, well, what do I have the most of? If I want to buy something new, what source of funds can I use? So fund managers do that professionally. They do that all the time. They have no choice. I don't think that a person watching this at home who's not managing a $50 billion mutual fund or ETF has that same consideration. So the bigger consideration for most of our viewers is more likely to be how, how much concentration do I now have in this holding? It's been a huge winner and I still like it, but I'm now more at risk based on this one holding than maybe I want to be. And so I think that that would really be, so it's not, I love Tesla, I hate Tesla. It's, yeah, I still like Tesla. I just don't want to have that much exposure. So professional investors do this all the time. Of course. I think amateur investors have to do this too, but they're making these decisions based on different factors. And, and frankly, that's, that's what they should be doing. So I, I hear you on, I guess you're, you're speaking to the idea of rebalancing a portfolio if you're a large portfolio or money manager like a like a Kathy Scott, Wood Apple is. is Scott Apple is Apple is uh, Apple is like a quarter of Berkshire Hathaway's stock portfolio and and climbing I don't think a lot of people understand that uh, they've had to manage that position as it's grown unless they want Berkshire to essentially be an Apple fund plus insurance and trains like that's where things are headed so when you see them adjust the Apple position that's not them expressing a view on whether or not Apple is good or bad. Like, if, if, if Berkshire Hathaway has to do that with a huge winner, then everybody does to a certain extent. Sure. But I, I'm trying to get at, Steve Weiss, whether this trickles or filters down to the individual investor level, as many of our viewers are. When you look at a three-month performance in an Apple, for example, of 23%, or Netflix of 22 or Alphabet of 19 of Microsoft of 16 or Facebook of 15 whether you should think the same way that a large money manager like a Kathy Wood would, would be thinking about, albeit for some different reasons. You're not necessarily rebalancing uh, a portfolio, so to speak, but you are looking at some sizable gains Maybe rebalancing risk, just taking advantage of a market move to maybe cash in some profits. Yeah. So, look, I'm, I'm one of the people that believes that uh, that diversifying a portfolio is the enemy of performance. And there have been lots of research papers on that. And, you know, our friend Dave Tepper, he lives by concentration of positions. However, it's prudent to lower your risk. Something can go wrong with every stock you own. You could have had a terrible decision on Epic that did away with Apple's entire service business. Now I'm exaggerating, but I think it is a good idea to take profit sometimes. Uh, however, what's more important is to know why you went into the stock, have a price target when you went into the stock, and if the company is continuing to miss those milestones that you have as the reason for your investing, that's when you start to get out. I don't think you necessarily get out because it's doing well. However, if it pops one day 20 percent and that's way ahead of where you expect to be, you know, at that point, then sure, you want to take some profits because it's imprudent to have so much risk, particularly for an individual investor, to have so much risk tied to one name. Apple's a unique one because it's worked. Sure. There's been no penalty for doing it. Mm -hmm. There's only been reward. But others, it doesn't work all the time. All right. Still ahead, the investment committee making several moves in this market. We'll detail those. The latest buys and sells are coming up. And as a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back 
on the half in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Tomorrow marks the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. The compensation for victims was well publicized, $7 billion to 97 percent of the eligible families of victims. But the financial impact spread far beyond those families. Contessa Brewer joining us now with more. Hi, Contessa. Scott, here I am at the 9-11 memorial and the bagpipes are serenading those who have come to pay their respects, to mourn, to remember and reflect here at uh, the epicenter of what happened that day on September 11th, 2001. You know, the crushing financial impact of those attacks spread far beyond ground zero, beyond the families who lost loved ones. And some of those directly affected are still feeling the pain 20 years later. Tore my stomach out. I couldn't even, I could hardly breathe. I made over 3 million square feet of deals at the original World Trade Center. Commercial real estate broker Ken Laub watched 20 years ago as a terror attack brought down buildings he knew so well. The amount of damage was unbelievable. In an instant, an immediate halt to the financial businesses that made up the economic lifeblood of lower Manhattan. A huge exodus and 15 million square feet of office space that were displaced and corporations scampering around the city and the tri-state area to find facilities. What had been a concrete jungle for nearly 400,000 office workers turned into a ghost town. But into that void stepped opportunists, dreamers, and the defiant. I think that part of my motivation was really, I'm not going to abandon the city. The city has life and that's possibility. In 2002, Marco Passanella moved into lower Manhattan, even as the cleanup at Ground Zero continued. Bought a historic building, started a wine boutique, without many neighbors to sell wine to. I was just praying that the residents would come, and then they did come. By 2020, the number of apartments more than doubled. Baby strollers now wind past Wall Street, new grocery stores and schools. $30 billion in public and private investment resulted in astonishing architecture, modern transportation hubs, and public spaces, including the 9-11 Memorial, a primary destination for visitors. 
And while there are 25% fewer office workers now than in 2001, there's a wider blend of companies, including Uber and Spotify. People wearing hoodies and funky sneakers who aren't working from 9 to 5, that's for sure, and you see that difference. Um, it's a new segment of the economy, and it has diversified our economy here, which is, is a goal for a very long time. So the real issue for this neighborhood now is what comes next after the pandemic. After all, being here, living close to work where there were suddenly so many amenities was one of the draws of being in lower Manhattan. And there are real questions now about the areas that surround this uh, ground zero and whether they can recover again. Once more, Scott. Yeah, I, w I was new to New York uh, on 9-11 Contessa, and I remember going into Marco's wine shop uh, shortly after he opened. Um, and there were a lot of, you know, people who came down there and tried to open businesses. And there were residents like me and my family who who had places to go when you didn't know what uh, was going to be life after 9-11 down in that area. It's a remarkable story of resilience, too, to hear from people like Marco Passanello and the other business owners who opened down there. Yeah. All right, that's Contessa Brewer uh, reporting for us. Uh, guys, I I'd love to reflect with you uh, on on post 9-11 and where you were that day and you know the, that terrible day and the the days that that followed i was still getting my bearings uh and not only at cnbc but but in new york itself steve weiss uh, you were entrenched in the financial industry uh on that day and uh, i believe you were down in that area on on september 11th of 2001 yes that's right i was at ground zero we were at there i was at lehman brothers at uh three world financial center and uh you know, I'll never forget it. I mean, at first we heard this large bang and we're looking and debris, fire debris is raining down and attaching to people on the ground. So we're watching those people burn. It was so sad. And then I get a call from a, from a, an account, a Dreyfus, and they say, wait, you know, that was a plane. You guys OK? And then they said, you know what? There appears to be another plane. And uh, it, it was a tough time. So. Uh, so I left, you know, uh, I was one of the senior guys. I was the only one on our floor out of 800 people. We only had 125 because we just opened a, a new trading floor upstairs. And so as I'm reflecting the car, bringing everybody back with me that I could fit in, we took the last ferry out as we're going across the river, the buildings are falling and this cloud, white cloud is just chasing us across the ferry, across the river. And, um, it was a tough time. You know, we had, I led the training program at Lehman, and we were supposed to have 200 college graduates and MBAs at the top of the World Trade Center, Windows in the World, and we canceled it two weeks before because of budgetary concerns. So 200 young people would have lost their lives. And after we canceled it, I was to go out for a meeting to, uh, to San Francisco, and I was on Flight 93, scheduled to be on it, but decided not to show up. Um, but the next day, September 12th, I and 19 other senior people uh, from each division uh, were in Jersey City trying to figure out how we're going to stay in business while we watched our building burn across the street. And then the next day, we went back to Ground Zero, my and one of my partners, myself and one of my partners, to look for real estate. Uh, one firm graciously, Capgemini, offered us space and went down there and came back and told Dick Fold, we can't bring our people down here. The debris was still floating through the air. So, so it's been a tough time. The searing images of people jumping, of people in distress, of our triage center in our lobby. Um, it, you never forget those. And, you know, my family wants to go to 9-11 Museum. I can't make that trip. 
you know, and I don't need any more memories. I've got the fresh memories. Yeah. So just a very, very tough time. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. I think we all understand that. Uh, Shannon, you were relatively new in the business, and I think you were in Boston at the time. I was. Um, you know, I was a naive kid, a couple years out of school. Uh, I went to school with a lot of people who were from New York and many that were in the financial services industry. And so sitting there at a cube early in the morning, um, getting calls, you know, from our partners at asset managers, you know, people that worked with us, traders, people we serviced, um, calling them, trying to make sure that they were okay. Um, And I think it really drove home for me, you know, how important New York was in terms of the financial services industry and how much it was the heart of the industry that I was so excited to be a part of. And just looking back and thinking about, you know, what happened over that next week, but also over the next several years as things really changed. And to hear the stories from folks like Steve who were there, um, you know, I can't imagine the pain for them, but I I certainly remember it. And I hope that we never have to be in that position again, you know, whether in New York or or anywhere else here um, to be threatened for our sovereignty in such a way. Yeah. Josh Brown, had you started your career yet? Yeah, I was working at a broker-dealer in the Helmsley building on 45th Street. My wife was working at Newmark Knight Frank Commercial Real Estate on 42nd Street. So in between us was the MetLife building and Grand Central. So our assumption was after the second plane, any one of these landmarks in Manhattan could be a target, and we wanted to be as far away from Grand Central as possible. The problem was in those days like uh, cell phones were, were primitive. It was, the system was in its infancy. So it really took me a while to finally get her on the phone. And I said, let's walk east. We'll meet on 2nd Avenue. We'll walk uptown to our apartment. We lived uh, on the Upper East Side. And my, my most searing memory from that time, living and working in Manhattan, we had Southern exposure uh, on the 33rd floor of our fil- uh, uh, building facing south. Every day, that black and gray cloud um, that Steve described as white, to us it was black a couple of days later, would inch a little bit closer uptown. It seemed to be like almost heading toward us. And while we're looking out the window at that, everything coming through the TV, coming through the radio, is that another attack on New York is imminent, like it's destined to happen, all the false scares, etc. So that's really what I remember uh, from that time, knew a lot of people down there. Not everybody uh, made it out, um, of course, but uh, I, I, I just feel as though seeing New York come back and going down there these days and visiting with my children and showing them the new Freedom Tower and, and walking them around the neighborhood, the, 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 uh, the new subway station, like that, that, I'm not saying it makes up for anything, of course, but just seeing the city bounce back has been really meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, well said. Uh, Surat, lastly, you, you were on the West Coast. I was. I was at an analyst conference in San Francisco. I woke up in the morning and then put the TV on and, you know, watching what was going on. And it was surreal because, as Josh said, the phones weren't really working. So I had a couple of my colleagues on the West Coast. We finally got together uh, within about 24 hours. We rented a car, one of the last cars that we could rent. Um, and then just drove east, and we stopped off in Vegas for one night. We kept on going east until we got to Denver, and we finally got on an airplane uh, and came back home. And when we landed, I still remember this. I mean, people were just clapping you know, that we could actually be back. And, uh, you know, our office was in Midtown. It took a while for everybody to kind of recover and to think about that. But uh, it, it's a real grounding experience back then. And I was 
you know, 52 now, I was uh, 32 at that point, just started working at my firm. Uh, and I just realized, like, wow, like, these things happen, and it puts everything into perspective really quickly about how important life is in friends and family. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I appreciate you sharing these, these thoughts with our viewers, uh, however painful they are. Uh, I know they appreciate it as well. Make sure to watch a special edition of the news with Shepard Smith tonight as well. America remembers 20 years later. That's tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern time here on CNBC. And in honor of the victims, CNBC is telling the stories of those who were there that day. Here's Peter Tuckman, trader at Quattro Securities. When we walked down the stairs, we came out on Broad Street, 30 Broad, at 11.47 in the morning, and you could not see your hand in front of your face. It was so pitch black. And there was about three and a half feet of ash on the street. And the two police officers and the eight of us walked arm in arm down eight blocks sideways as if you were almost in an avalanche of thick ash that really was holding your legs as you moved. You could not see where you were going. That moment was just, is ingrained in my mind forever. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. Attorney General Merrick Garland and the Justice Department honoring those lost on September 11th. He spoke in front of the Survivor Tree in Washington, which grew from the sapling of a tree that stood on the World Trade Center Plaza and withstood the fall of the Twin Towers. That day is forever seared into all of our memories. The pain, the terror, the enormous loss and also the incredible displays of courage. And tonight, a special edition of the news remembering the tragedy 20 years ago and how it changed America. Tune in tonight at 7 p.m. The FDA says that robust safety data is needed before it can approve COVID vaccines for kids. Health regulators say that clinical trials will include a monitoring period of at least two months after the majority of participants get their shots to ensure safety. And Harvard University is divesting from fossil fuels. The school's $42 billion endowment fund, the largest in the U.S., will instead look for investments supporting the green economy. You're now up to date. More halftime after this. All right, let's talk about some of the moves the investment committee is making today. Surat, I begin with you. You bought more Uber. You bought more GoDaddy. I did. Tell us about Uber first. It's off quite substantially from its 52-week high, nearly 40%. It is, Scott. And I think uh, what happened is once the variant became front and center, uh, the stock sold off because reopening was going to take longer. Plus, you had a major supply issue in terms of getting staff or, or drivers. So I think you've got great demand and you've got a lot of things falling in place. The stock is also, uh, management's also promised that they'll be EBITDA positive by the end of the year. So I think there's a good catalyst ahead for that stock. Uh, GoGoDaddy is, is one of the leaders in web hosting for small businesses. 
Uh, revenue is growing 10% a year. Uh, they had a good earnings report, but it wasn't as much as what the street expected. This stock's now trading at you know 15 times cash flow. I think it's got great uh, tailwinds ahead, and, and I would own this stock for a while. Okay. Steve Weiss, you sold LYB, Lion Double Zell. Yes, I did. Look, I, it's consistent what I've been doing last week. I saw the valet. You have to sell these sickle stocks when they look cheap, when the P.E. is like here about seven times. You want to buy them when the P.E.'s high because there they're at the bottom of the cycle. So I've got enough sickle exposure. I've got Cleveland Cliffs. I've got Freeport. Uh, that's pretty much it for me. I'm not sure this cycle is going to continue. You know, we saw a PPG. Prices are being pressured. So that's why I sold it. Just don't need it anymore in the portfolio. All right. Oracle shares up almost 40 percent this year. Very quietly. It reports earnings next week. We'll give you the trade ahead of those numbers. We'll do it next. All right, Oracle mentioned it before. Gets ready to report earnings next week. The stock is up almost 40 percent this year. And Surat, I got to tell you, I said uh, quietly up 40 percent because no one talks about it. Yeah, we, we had talked about it in the past, and it was one of these value tech stocks um, that, that really what we had focused on was when can they cross that chasm to recurring revenue and when can they grow a top line. That's what we're going to look for next week. The stock has done everything we asked for it. If there is more upside to it, then I think it'll be, it'll be something I want to hold and add to. If not, it's done everything we've asked for, and it might be time to re- revisit the story. But you're going to wait until you see what it, what it delivers? Uh, I'm wondering why not, yeah, just, why, why not just take some chips before the number? If you're even thinking about it now, rather um, than risk losing some on the other side. So it's a good question. Really, the reason is because if, if you look at this stock and you look at what Microsoft did many years ago, if they can continue to produce and perform, this stock has a long way to go. The question is, was this just easy revenue that they had or is there more to go? And that's why it's, it's a 2% position for me. So it's not something huge mm-hmm. uh, that I need to diversify from. But, but that's what I'm going to be looking to. All right. You give us a shout uh, after the report. Let us know what you do. If anything, uh, we'll catch up with you next time for sure. We'll do final trades next. Uh, absolutely. All right. Let's do some final trades. Steve Weiss, why don't you start us off today, please? Apple's going to have a big phone announcement. Guess what that means? More dollars for Skyworks, who provides the RF chips. So I'd buy Skyworks into the event. Oh, okay. Interesting one. Thank you for that. Shannon? Home Depot. Don't sleep on the home improvement trend. I think it's going to continue, and margins could improve as some, of, some costs like lumber come down. Okay. Surat? Uh, Roblox. I think the gaming tailwinds are going to be here for a while to stay, and uh, if they can make more money through this Apple ruling, uh, I like it even more. All right. And the TRB, the reform broker, Josh Brown. Uh, Matterport currently breaking out of a six-month high as I'm talking. This week they announced the big deal with Cushman and Wakefield Japan, which is a massive commercial realtor for 3D tours, and they got a price target lift at Piper Sandler. I like everything happening here. I'm long. You know, I, I remember yesterday it was John Nigerian. I think it was during the program uh, bought calls of Matterport. We talked about it. I mean, right ahead of some momentum. We're watching the stock right now, uh, you know, jump even a little bit more as we're talking about it up about 6%. So that's an interesting one. We'll follow it. Thank you, everybody. Have a good weekend. We'll see you on the other side. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. 
You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.